So the four words that we're thinking about with regard to helping people in biblical relationships are love, know, speak, and do. And uh, went back and, and uh, thought through some of what Paul Tripp was saying in his book there on biblical counseling. The question at the end of the class last time was, uh, you know, should we be really speaking so much at the beginning? And should it be more of a, of a listening exercise? That is to to be concerned about their their um, their their uh, problem that they're going through. Well, when I talked about it last week and and probably the week before, love, no speak, do is uh, more like a process. But probably a better way to think about it, just to be fair to the book that I'm uh, working through, which is Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. Probably don't think of it like um, you know like. You, you, do the love part at the beginning of the conversation and then turn that off. And now let's go over to the, the uh, no part where we try to understand their problem. Then once we've understood the problem, now we're only speaking. Instead, think of it as all four of these things we're doing within the, the relationship process. We are seeking to show love throughout the entire time. We're seeking to know them, know the, under, know the problem, try to understand it clearly. Then we're speaking God's Word to them and then we're also doing. Now, there, there may be some sort of uh, a process involved, but the, the point is, is all those things will be involved uh, throughout, particularly the love and the no part. All right? So, hopefully that uh, clears up some of what we were talking about last time. This week we want to talk about suffering, and uh, this falls under our responsibility to, to show love to a person and... Uh, I realize that top part is hard to read, but we'll be able to see the, the main parts that you're going to be looking at anyway. So, All right, we need to be able to identify with them in, in suffering. We should not be surprised when we come across people who suffer. Suffering can come in all different shapes and sizes. It can range from temporary wounds, uh, can be physical, can be emotional, can be spiritual, or it can be someone's thoughtfulness, thoughtlessness, I should say, to uh, maybe even as extreme as some hor- horrible experience of mistreatment and abuse. The point is that no one is immune from suffering. And because of that, we have common ground from which we can minister to each person. The problem with our mindset often is that we think really bad things will never happen to, to us, to good people. And as a result, we don't know how to relate to people who genuinely suffer because we think that God's punishing them in some way. So in order to help people in their suffering, we need to think biblically and to treat them compassionately. And the Bible has a lot to say about this. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. See uh, one example. The first thing that we need to understand about suffering is that God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. God is sovereign over all things, even suffering. It would be wrong of us to think that God has nothing to do with anything bad that happens to us, any difficulty that comes into our lives. It would be wrong for us to think that God is somehow aloof, unconcerned, or even that He doesn't know about it, that He's learning about it as it comes up. Look at this uh, classic example here in verse 7 of Paul's thorn in the flesh. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, My grace, grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In verse 7, at the end, uh, towards the end, you see that this thorn in the flesh was actually a result of a messenger of Satan. So, in one sense, Satan was responsible for the thorn in the flesh. But in another sense, God was ultimately responsible. The first part of the verse, Paul is saying that there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. And I think the implication there is that it was by God because in verse 8, who does he implore to have it taken from him? He implores the Lord three times that it would be taken from him. So he recognized that this suffering, while the direct agent, the immediate agent, was Satan, the ultimate agent, the one who allowed it, who is in control over it, is God. We see the same idea in Job 1.21 when Job has basically all of his possessions and everything that he loved taken from him except for his health and his wife in chapter 1. His health will come in in chapter 2, but he has all those things taken from him. And what does he say? The Lord gives and Satan takes away. Is that what he says? No, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. So he attributes his loss to God. Now, that's not a sinful action on the part of Job. In fact, God never condemns him for saying that. Um, and the writer of Job uh, seems to seems to agree with Job that what he said there was true. Uh, if we were to look at the plagues of Egypt, um, th- that's probably maybe not the best example because that's referring to unbelievers primarily, but the suffering that God brings about on on uh, Pharaoh and the people of Egypt was a result of God's hand. Even we'll see this morning in, in Exodus chapter 12 in the morning service that it was God who struck the Egyptians. God said, I will smite the Egyptians. So this suffering that God is bringing on the unbelievers in this case is from the hand of God. And probably the best example comes from the uh, the crucifixion of our Lord. In Isaiah 55.10, Isaiah prophesied that it, it, it pleased the Lord to crush, to crush Him, to bring about the suffering of the Lord. In, Ex- in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, it says that this suffering, this death, came about by the hands of wicked men, but it was God who predestined that it would happen. So, we know that, that suffering is under the control of God. Okay, so that's the first thing that we need to keep in mind if we're going to be able to help someone in suffering. Secondly, we need to recognize that God is good because, turn to Psalm 136, because the the, the um, natural inclination of us is that if God is sovereign over all things, including suffering, then God must not be good. If He is the one who is allowing this suffering or in some way planning this suffering, then he cannot be good. But we need to we need to hold that in balance with uh, the rest. What the rest of Scripture says, which is that God is good. Psalm one thirty six, and we won't read the whole thing. But I just want you to notice kind of the the recurring refrain. 
Verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His loving kindness is everlasting. And if you go down all the way till the end of the chapter, you'll see that that same refrain shows up in every verse. And obviously, the the idea that the psalmist is getting across here is that the loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. That he His faithfulness, His love, His faithfulness in love does not end. So it would be wrong to us to think that that God is not good. And it's wrong for us to think that a truly good God would never allow suffering. Because that's the kind of God that we have. We have a God who is good and who allows suffering. Um, Not only does He allow it, but He is there with us in it. And sometimes He even sends us into suffering for our good. And that, that's the point. That's the next point. God has a purpose for suffering. I get some volunteers to look up some of these verses. Eric, Romans 8:17. Paul, Philippians 2, 5-9. Gail, James 1, 2-4. God has a purpose in our suffering. He's not at war with suffering as if uh-oh, suffering's happening. I need to go in and, and stamp that out. God actually uses suffering as a tool to accomplish redemption in the lives of humans, both believers and unbelievers. So let's listen to Romans 8.17. Okay, so there Paul's saying that suffering is actually an expected thing of a believer. The whole point of First Peter is that that we will have suffering as believers, suffering first and then glory. Don't be surprised if you suffer like Christ suffered. Philippians two five to nine. Okay, so if Jesus suffered, the Paul's point there is that we need to have the same attitude that that we should expect that that uh, suffering will happen, and yet we still are humble throughout it and recognize that God has something bigger in store. In fact, the rest of that is that He would give Him a name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee. But before He could get there, He had to suffer. Listen to James one two to four. Okay, so what what's the point of suffering there? Why do we go through trials? Okay, it produces something in us, right? It's a testing of our faith and it produces something that's good. It actually brings about a perfect or a completed result so that we are lacking nothing. So there's also sorts of reasons. We looked at a few just now of why God allows suffering into our lives. Okay, let me just list a couple of them and then we'll we'll talk about how they work in, in our individual cases of suffering. 
we live in a fallen world. We are plagued by the curse, and so we are going to suffer. Just because our world is cursed, there's going to be suffering. hope you recognize in the next life that will not be the case because the, the earth will not be cursed. Even when Jesus comes to reverse the curse in the kingdom, uh, we will not suffer. Uh, self, the, another reason for suffering is that we bring it about, about upon ourselves, right? We go out and um, are, uh, you know, maybe uh, mowing our lawn or, or using the weed eater on our lawn without any protection in our eyes or uh, over our eyes or, or on our legs or whatever, then we shouldn't be surprised if we have little sticks or stones being, you know, shot up at us. And, and uh, so sometimes we suffer because of self-inflicted uh, type of things. Other times it's because of sinful people. We live not only in a cursed world, and certainly sometimes we don't bring it upon ourselves, but we live with sinful people. Someone else can commit a sin against us and cause a great amount of suffering. could be because of Satan, that he is our enemy who lies to us, tempts us, opposes us, and seeks to devour us, to destroy us. And uh, certainly it could be simply just part of living as a Christian and helping us grow. See, what we're looking for in suffering is a singular answer. Like, if I go through this, what, what is God doing in this? So give me one of these answers for why God is doing this. But, but uh, I was just reading through a, a book this week uh, called Truth Matters, and, and the, the authors there were saying, you know, th- there are so many... It, our suffering comes about because of so many complex reasons that we can't ultimately know all the reasons. He gave the illustration of a basketball coach who calls a timeout. Why Why did the basketball coach call the timeout at that point? Well, if you know anything about sports, there are many reasons to call timeouts. You know, it might be because their guys are winded. It might be because the crowd's getting into it too much and they're out, you know, they're on an away court. Uh, it might be because he, he wants to, to switch out a player. He, he might want to slow down the momentum of the other team. He might want to write up a play. There, there are so many reasons, and he actually could have more than one reason to call a timeout and each, each time that he does it. And the point is, is that we can't know exactly why God causes the suffering or allows the suffering in, in our lives. We can't say, well, I know I can point that to this because of that. And God might be doing multiple things. Like He might be growing us in it, and at the same time, He might be showing us that we live in a sin-cursed world. And uh, so we want to, to think properly about suffering in order to be able to help ourselves and other. So, we want to continue to see how we show love to a person who needs our counsel. So, last week we looked at, we first we enter their world, we show them the love of Christ, and then thirdly, um, we, we want to identify with their suffering. So, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and as we do, do you have any questions about what we've talked about so far? Hebrews chapter 2. Alright, in order to see how um, your last blank there is God has reasons for suffering. God has reasons for suffering. In order to see how we deal with people who are suffering, you need to think about how Christ dealt with people who were suffering. So look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. For it was fitting for Him... Jesus, for whom all are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, 
to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So in a broad sense, Christ identifies with our suffering. Why? How can He identify with our suffering? Because He's suffered like us. Okay, we, we are suffering really like Him. So He shares in our suffering because He has suffered like us. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. That's what verse 11 says. We are in the same family. We're in a similar position in the family. We share similar life experiences because of that position. This sees how we can help. This sees how we can. Uh, it shows us how we can treat others who are suffering. That we don't stand above them as if you know you got you're suffering. You know you got some kind of character flaw. But we suffer also. We're working with people with whom we share the same identity and, and are in the same family. So let's think of some implications for this. Number one, God sends people to me so that I can help them change. Okay, and probably in addition to that, we should add, and so that I will change as well. God sends people into my life so that He helps me change. I have a front row seat to suffering. And so because of that, I can serve uh, someone else who also is suffering. We'll look at that later here and we get to 2 Corinthians. Um, number two, we are dependent upon God, not the other way around. We are brothers and sisters with those whom we counsel. We're not a father to them in the sense that, you know, you depend on me because I am the, I'm the final authority on suffering. Instead, we point them to our mutual father so that they depend on Him like we ought to have depended on Him during our suffering. Number three, our lives are on display, including our flaws. Sometimes when it comes to counseling, a person might think, well, that's easy for you to say. You have no idea what I'm going through. And in a sense, that's true. No one fully understands your situation fully. No one has gone through your exact uh, steps that you have taken in life, your exact circumstances. But it's also true that whatever you go through is common to man. That means that in some way, not only can we relate to each other, but we can help each other move toward honoring God in our suffering. I mean, think of Jesus. He is fully human, but He's also fully divine. And so we might think that, well, His sufferings and temptations were far less severe than we have to, to face. He doesn't understand what it's like to have to, to feel the consequences of sin but the truth is that He was made like us in every way. Certainly, He did not sin, but He felt the consequences of sin on the cross. He suffered like we suffer, and He's tempted like we are tempted. And that's why He's such a merciful and faithful high priest. So, if we're going to identify with someone suffering, then, then it, it, it helps that we have first gone through suffering ourselves. And that's how Jesus identifies with us as well. All right, finding purpose in suffering. Look again at verse 10. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. In what way was Christ made 
perfect. I mean, how did suffering make Christ perfect? If we understand what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, it'll help us to understand our own suffering and be able to help others in their suffering. Jesus, the, the eternal Son, Son of God, is said to have been perfected through His sufferings. So, how, how is that possible? As the eternal Son of God, was there ever time a time when Christ was not perfect? Of course not. He existed eternally as God, and He has always been perfect, and He cannot sin. What about when He came, became man? Was there ever a time when Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, was imperfect? No. So the idea here is that Jesus is being made perfect in His suffering. So what does that mean? The idea here is that Jesus is being declared to be perfect as a result of having suffered as a human. In other words, He is completing the work of God. That's just another way of saying perfect. And if you take this Greek word, it's just another way of saying uh, completed. That He who started this work in you will perfect it on the day of Jesus Christ or will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. The point is that Jesus is complete now. Because He is human, He's, he's now been, experienced the, been able to experience the full weight of what it means to be human, which includes... Uh, the suffering that comes as a result of the fall. So he is completing the work that God planned for him. So here's the point. God also, in the same way, makes us perfect through the path of suffering. Okay, When I say perfect, I don't mean that we come to a place where we no longer sin. And there will, will come a time, but that will be in the next life. But the point is that it, that he brings us to a place of of completion, of greater holiness, which leads to our final perfection, which we'll receive in the next life. Okay, so from this, we have several implications. Number one, God is the source of true compassion. Biblical counseling encourages us. Okay, that God is this. I, I think I'm getting ahead of myself here, but um, that's actually going to be in the Second Corinthians passage. Okay, biblical counseling encourages us, uh, others to depend on Christ rather than us. We are ambassadors of Christ. We are in need of change who serve as instruments of change. It, it also means that we must be humble. My stories of failure and hope in Christ serve as an example for those that I am helping. And, and my story is just part of God's larger story. Christ is at the center. And then ultimately, biblical counseling points to Christ. Alright, so let's turn to 2 Corinthians. And as we're turning, do you have any questions on Hebrews? 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If we're going to help someone who's suffering, how do we come along, alongside them with compassion? I mean, have you ever had that experience where you knew someone was suffering in a deep way and you just didn't know what to say to them? What, what are the precise words that would help them that, would, like Paul says in Ephesians, would be helpful for the need of the moment? I mean, I don't know those words. If someone's going through a, a deep trial or a compelling sin, what can I say that would actually help them? We certainly don't want to point them in the wrong direction. We don't want to send them off on the wrong path. We don't want to speak in cliches either. You know, like, I know they're in a better place. You know, they stand at the funeral. I know they're in a better place. Everybody says that. Even unbelievers say that. So we don't want to speak in cliches. We want them to know that God is concerned with them in their trials and that He is with them and that the Scriptures are sufficient. So how do we do this? How do we 
speak to someone suffering in profound ways without being trite. Well, I think we have a great example here in if we understand the concept in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And let me read uh, verses 3 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death that will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us, so also joining and helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. If we're going to think rightly about suffering so that we can help others and ourselves, then then we need to understand this passage. And here's your first point that I already um, that I already revealed to you. Okay, God is the source of true compassion. God is the source of true compassion. We live in a a world that idolizes comfort. When I say that, I mean they make comfort an idol for them. It's idolatry to love comfort as much as our culture does. And, and so, as a consequence of that, we see suffering as an obstacle to our ultimate end. But if we understand the Scriptures right, we need to understand that God actually sends us into the suffering in order to shape us. And what we need to know is that real comfort in suffering comes from knowing that I am in the hand of God and that He loves me. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So there's that point. God is a source of true compassion, true comfort. And notice what He does, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. So, So if we understand this point, when we're going through suffering, then what that does, the next line says, we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. If we understand the comfort that comes from God and we learn from that, we experience that comfort, and we can help someone else when they're going through any kind of suffering. So when we comfort someone, we don't say something like, you know, everything's going to be okay. Because frankly, it may not be. We comfort them by reminding them of God's love for them. Remind them of the comfort that we received when we went through suffering. Compassion would not exist in any form on the earth if it was not sourced in God, who is compassion. And so we comfort people in their affliction because God has comforted us. That's the start. That's where we must begin. Number two, God comforts us 
so that we can minister to others and their suffering. God uses our suffering and subsequent comfort so that we can minister to others. We are the recipients of God's compassion. In fact, one of the reasons that God sends us into suffering is so that we can comfort someone else. We want to appreciate, experience, uh, feel that comfort from God so that we can help others when they suffer. Number three, we are to share in Christ's suffering. God desires our suffering so that we will share in Christ's suffering. As a Christian, you have been called to suffer so that you can share in God's comfort. You have experienced God's comfort so that you can comfort others and then those people can help share in God's comfort and then pass it on to other people as they are going through suffering. This is all part of God's plan for believers to share in the sufferings of Christ. We suffer because we carry His name. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Part of being a part, part of being a a sibling, a brother or sister of Jesus Christ, is that we will suffer um, like Jesus suffered. Number four, the ultimate goal in suffering is hope in God. What we're trying to see in the person, what we're trying to see in ourselves when we go through suffering is hope. And that's, uh, I have a verse reference. Yeah, verse seven there. Um Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort. Verse 7, and our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Our, Our hope for that person is that they will have hope. Then number 5, our comforting of another person means pointing people to God's truth. If we're going to to do that, we need to point them to God's truth. And we do this by one way is by sharing stories of affliction with the person who's going through suffering. That's what Paul's doing here in verse 8. Okay? Because God is the God of all comfort and He comforts those who are going through trials through the people who have been comforted by Him before, then I want to tell you about something that we've been going through. You know, we were burdened excessively when we came to Asia. And we had the sentence of death on us. Paul here is telling a story of, of suffering and how God had helped him in it. He's not saying, you know, my, my uh, difficulty was worse than your difficulty. You know, you, you know, so we don't go to people and say, well, you have a terminal heart disease. Well, one time I almost choked to death and I was on death's door or something like that. Uh, that may be a story that you use to, to help share with them some of the details of how God worked with you, but but the point is not to to give a better story. The focus of Paul's story here in verses 8 through 11 focused very little on the details. We don't know a lot about the details. Instead, he he makes it about God, and and that's what our story of suffering ought to be when we come to share with someone else, making God the hero of our story. Notice the climax in verse 10. Speaking of God, he says, He delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and He will yet deliver us. You also joining and helping with with us through your prayers so that thanks may be given. So the climax of Paul's story is worship. It is that, that we must honor God for what He's done in this suffering. If we're going to be people who have... Uh, 
who have been comforted and have received hope in our suffering, then uh, we need to also help others to see that same thing. That, that when they're going through that suffering, they need to find their hope in God. And, you know, suffering will naturally grab a person's attention, but also what it will do is it will cloud their vision. Even a believer, it, it can cloud their vision, leading them to quickly forget what anchors their faith. And so what people need, what we need when we go through suffering is other believers who come alongside and who have suffered and who will point us to the one who is our rock and who is our fortress. Now, the point in doing this and encouraging someone in their suffering is not to point them to bluer skies because the skies may never get bluer. Their life may end because of the suffering that they're going through. Okay, they may never get out of the difficult marriage, difficult marriage that they're struggling through. They may never. Okay, now we don't, we don't, we don't say that to them. Okay, use tact. Uh, you know, wow, I've never seen it this bad before. You're probably going to die here in this hospital bed. You, I'd be surprised if you ever made it home. Okay, so don't don't do that, or say, man, your marriage is about as bad as I've ever seen, and so uh, good luck with that. Um, Okay, but at the same time, we're not going to the other extreme and saying, no, everything's going to be okay. Because actually, if you think about it, following Christ might mean that everything won't be okay. It might mean that things will get worse and that the suffering never goes away. Is that possible? Has anyone ever gone through that in the Scriptures who had to go through suffering? And if some other Christian came along and said, it's okay, everything's going to be okay, they would have been, they would have been telling a lie. Okay, they would have been not speaking truth. They would have not, not have been speaking on behalf of God. And so if we're going to minister to people, what we want them to see is that there is hope in suffering, no matter how long it lasts. Okay, God has the power to remove you from the suffering. But even if He does not, your hope still needs to be fixed on God. It reminds me of the three, um, the three uh, Jews there in Babylon when... Uh, when they stand before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar tells them to bow down. They won't do it. And, uh, and they come to Nebuchadnezzar and he, he asks why effectively. And they say, you know, we believe that our God can save us from this fiery furnace. We know that He has the power to do that. But if not, we still will not bow down to your idol. And that's the way that we need to give people hope in suffering. That is, that, that we know that God can remove you from that suffering. He has the power to do it. I've seen Him do it. I've, I've read stories about Him removing people from their suffering. But even if He does not, your eyes still need to be fixed on God because He is the source of our hope. If we're going to be people who minister to others, we must build relationships with them for God's glory, which means entering their world, showing the love of Christ, and then... Uh, comforting them in in their suffering, which is what we spent most of our time talking about. And then there's one more element of this first aspect of biblical relationships, and it is accepting God's agenda. Accepting God's agenda. So let's turn to Titus, and as we do, you can let me know if you have any questions. Any questions on suffering? How we use our own suffering to help other people and theirs? How we point people to God's hope or the hope that is in God. All right, Titus 2.11.
the grace that adopts us into Christ's family is not a grace that says, I'm okay. God's grace comes to me because I'm not okay. That's why it's grace. If I were okay, I would need grace, right? So being a part of God's family means that God has come to us even though we didn't deserve it, and He's come to us for a purpose. See if you can see what that is here in Titus 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. God's grace is needed for us to come to Him. God's grace appeared to us bringing salvation. But it didn't come just so that we could be spared from the fiery, you know, the fiery furnace of hell, so to speak. But it did come so that we could do something. What is that? What do these verses tell us that God's grace came to us for? Why were we saved? What was one reason why we were saved? Um that's what it does. That's the description of what's happened. But what does it do for us? Okay, it actually changes us, right? It instructs us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly desires and to say yes to living sensibly and righteously and godly and looking for the blessed hope. God's grace is a grace that doesn't just bring someone to Christ. It's a grace that changes a person. And that's something that we need constantly when God accepts us as His child, it is only the beginning of what He is doing. Ephesians 2, verse 10 says that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're brought to salvation, but for a purpose. For what? For good works, right? So that we could we could display His excellencies through His changing of us. God didn't save us just to save us. God saved us to change us. So, That means that a person in need of help spiritually must be pointed to God's grace. Not just the grace that saves them, but the grace that sustains them and changes them. That's what we constantly need to be pointing people back to as long as we are dealing with people who are indwelt by sin. Our goal for them is change. But at the same time, we recognize that we also are in need of change. Um, We're also in need of change. We don't deal with them in a condemnatory way, like how could you? You know, you're, you're terrible. But recognize that you know we are people in need of change who are helping people in need of change. That's the subtitle of the book, and I think that's a helpful way to think about how we interact with other people, how we counsel people, how we encourage people towards godliness. And that means that we need to be willing to accept them as God accepts us, not with a sneering look like the. Pharisees, you know, no one's as good as us. You're terrible. You're you're sinner. But rather, like, like, uh, like those disciples, apostles who recognized their own uh, frail condition and their own depraved hearts, even after they became believers, that there was still vestiges of sin within them, and they were seeking to help other people with with uh, pockets of sin as well. We accept them as God accepts us. So if we're going to minister to people who need to change, we need to treat them with love by coming alongside of them rather than looking down at them. We need to point them to the truth of God since God is the one who is the source of comfort, compassion. He's the source of change. 
So we, we look at them humbly alongside of them rather than down on top of them. We point them to God's Word and relationships that are built in this way become places where God's work thrives. Within these kinds of relationships, people are renewed, restored, rebuilt, and refined because God is central and the glory of Christ is at the center of the corporate change. And I hope that you have experienced this kind of thing within the life of the church that you are a part of. The church that that um, that God is using to shape you. I hope you've experienced people uh, pointing you to Christ and coming alongside of you in your suffering to help you see um, God amidst this. And I hope that you're also looking for ways in which you can help other people do the same. Any questions or comments? All right, well, next week we have uh, missionary Jonathan Rayfelt. He's on deputation. He and his wife are on deputation to go to Uruguay, to Colonia, and help with the Perez's. And I'm really looking forward to their ministry. And, and um, so they're going to be here during Sunday school. We're going to meet in the auditorium, combined Sunday school. They'll tell us about what their work is and what they're planning to do. And then during the morning service, he's going to preach for us as well. So after that, when we come back, we'll start on, that'll be two weeks from now, We'll look back at the um, the next topic, which is no. We need to um, think about these four main ways in which we minister to people in counseling or in these biblical relationships. We show love to them. We know. We want to understand what the problem is. We want to ask questions. And so we'll, we'll look at that and then speak and do. So this one, this next uh, part, no, is going to take two weeks. And uh, so we'll, we'll tackle that when we get back to our regular regular schedule. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for how you have given us comfort in in our suffering. We have seen your mercy as we've been pointed to the truth. I can think of specific times when when I was going through some some serious uh difficulties in life where people in my church came along and encouraged me and pointed me to some Scripture that I still hold very dearly today. And Lord, I pray that I would be that kind of person that would be willing to point people to the hope that there is in the Scripture. I pray that You'd help us to to uh, to grow in our ability to do this as we uh, walk through suffering ourselves. We pray that You would make us ministers of You and conduits of Your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.